Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey everybody, it's Bob again, and I've got the book, If You Really Want to Change the World, a guide to creating, building, and sustaining breakthrough ventures. It's written by two people, Henry Cressel and Norman Wynarski. And Norman's on the line today. Norman, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Bob. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today. Now, I already know, uh, because you know we usually have a little warm-up chat before we get uh, going on the show, that this is going to be a fun one. Norman says, take off the gloves. This is going to be a tough show. No, just kidding. It's true, though. <laughs> <laughs> So, so to get started, you know, why did you think this book was important to come out now? There's a few important reasons for this book. One of them is that it's a book about creating breakthrough ventures. If you look on Amazon today, there, uh, if you look up entrepreneurship and startups, there's about 70,000 books written in this subject. So, so we decided to write one more. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. What we really decided was that this is a book with one particular mission for those people that want to create a breakthrough venture. Not just any venture, but a venture that can impact millions of people. And we thought that there's a real need for this, given the, the culture of how people create ventures today. Mm. Well, you know, that, that's interesting. Breakthrough, you know, a lot of people say breakthrough, that, that's new and it's innovative and stuff like that. Do you have to be new and innovative or do you just have to do your... A concept and idea in a really authentic and real way and, and really have heart behind it? You can do both. Uh, you can create a breakthrough venture that's faster, cheaper, better, you know? Uh, something that's some market that already exists and you're entering that market with something new that, uh, that really really uh, competes well with, and more than well, that competes tremendously with uh, existing markets. In the case of uh, Brave New World, if you like, that's where you've created something that will have a, an entirely new market. So both of those are certainly addressed in our book, and both of them are highly important. Hmm. So for you, when you were putting the book together, what was your aha moment when something crystallized and you say, you know, I've known this for years, but now I really get it? There's a few things that, that really inspired me to write this book. One of them was that we created Siri. I'm the uh, co-founder and board member of Siri. And the story of how Siri got created has never been told in at least a complete way, in a way that really articulates how an entrepreneur might do the same thing. So that was one of the important things. The second, as I said, was about how you create a breakthrough venture, not just any venture, a venture that assists people in their daily lives. A third is against the culture of failure. As you know, Bob, in Silicon Valley, there's an incredible culture of fail fast, fail often, pivot often, and that is not a good way for people who really want to change the world to begin a venture. I mean, it's a great way to start 
if you want to create some venture. And it's even great prior to funding. If you haven't gotten venture funding yet and you want to play and, and explore, you should do that. But there's a huge damage to companies when they do that after they've been funded. Well, I just want to jump in there because, you know, that's very interesting because there's so many books out there saying, you know, it's okay to fail and failure will move you forward, blah, blah, blah. But it's, you know, it's a very salient point that you're making that that if you've got this kind of like failure attitude, yeah, it's okay to fail, you might actually have a lackadaisical approach to your business and won't be really moving it forward as vigorously as it should be moved forward. So... Fail fast, fail often has two problems associated to it. The first problem is you're not committed, you're not passionate enough, you're not going to make it happen. Um, when, when things get rough, and things always will get rough. That's the first point. The second major point is, and it's a beautiful point in a sense, that when you get venture investment, you're given something that is remarkable. You're given a lifespan. You're given an amount of money. You're given... Uh, uh, some goals that you're trying to achieve and you have a burn rate. You literally understand how long your company is going to live under the existing circumstances. I've never known, and I'd actually invite your audience to tell me, of a venture that has really become a change the world breakthrough venture that after funding has had more than one pivot. Okay, so I can imagine one pivot where they seek where failure is inevitable and they're seeing it and they pivot to success. But more than one pivot, what happens is that the investors lose confidence, the team loses confidence, and the company generally fails, almost always fails. So please invite your audience to give me a single example of a great company that was created that pivoted more than once. Once it was funded, once it was funded. That's a good caveat because, you know, I've done startups and I think what happens is, you, you, you're, you know, you're sitting there, you've got all that creative excitement and basically it's fantasy times. Oh, we're going to do this and we're going to make millions of dollars, blah, blah, blah. And then you start to dig down and build your business plan and you start to realize, oh, this is ridiculous. What were we thinking? And then you actually pivot your idea to try and fit the market uh, because you have a much better idea of what the market needs or, or the competition that's in the market. And then you might pivot three or four or five times as you're trying to evolve to a point where you're going to get venture capital because you've got to figure that part out. And sometimes it takes years. And, and this is really the question for you. For business people, do you think you've got to kind of have that, that long tail approach to your concept and say, you know, it might not go now, or I might not get funding this year, but it's still a good idea and it's still something that's going to work. So don't give up on getting funding right away. Oh, completely, completely. First of all, I agree that um, you do not have to seek funding and have the first idea and seek funding from it. And in fact, in that sense, about failing fast, failing often, pivoting, it is a good approach. Exactly as you just said, there's four major ingredients to creating a breakthrough venture. And, and, and you need to make those four all work in order to understand how to create this great venture. You know, the first one is a great market pain, market problem, market need. Uh, the second one is a great team. And actually, that's not second in the sense uh, of uh, 
of importance. The third is that you have an outstanding value proposition that you've articulated in a crystal clear way the value and impact on the world. And the fourth is you have either a highly differentiated technology or business case that'll make that difference. And, and it is just as you said, it could take years. When we build Siri, um, we started thinking about you know, software agents and the like in 2003. And Siri came out in uh, 2000, January of 2008. That's a long time. It's a long time. Now, let's, let's put that in proportion, right? It's like it would be a long time in the car industry. It'd be a long time in a restaurant. But in the technology industry, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime. I mean, in fact, I can explain why it took so long. But yes, in technology, I think of technology years like dog years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is fascinating because, you know, Siri is one of those products that came out and it was like a reinvention or an upgrade of something we've talked about, we've wanted to have, we've kind of had it going, but it was the first time that we've had the, the voice activation approach to asking questions and then a, a, like a like just ask Jeeves person comes back and says, okay, here, this is what I recommend based on the massive amounts of data that's out there these days. So basically a, a data mining friend. The concept's been around in science fiction forever. I mean, like Star Trek and, and even further back, I'm sure Jules Verne wrote about it in the 1800s. I mean, it's just a basic need of humans to want to know more. And uh, you, you go back even further to the mass, uh, the dark ages where people were purposely not educated to keep them down. Now we're in the exact opposite where there's so much information out there that people are being dumbed down because they just don't know what to believe. Now, <clears throat> okay, I've gone meandering there a little bit and <laughs> gone a little bit of a rant, but these are the type of tools and these are the type of revolutionary ideas that can move this whole society, like, I mean, as in the globally, forward in huge jumps. So my question in a very roundabout way is, do you think having technologies... Um, come to the forefront like Siri, uh, the ability for us to get any data and whatever, is helping us move forward or hindering us from moving forward? So a couple answers to that question. One answer was when we first created Siri, it was a very specific market problem. Uh, at a broad, if we only had the broad market problem, and which we kind of had when we thought about um, software agents, we would have never been able to create Siri. And and your skepticism about creating um, those kind of things and you know, why it takes so long is correct. Um, the, the normal uh, creation of ventures that relate to this are always going through what's called the valley of death of ideas. <laughs> there, there's great ideas that are in, you know, academic, science fiction, you name it. They're usually 5, 10, 15, 20 years away from product. And then there's product ideas that people don't have in their companies a way of going more than a year or two at most before that product comes out. They, they have that much time for developing it and that's all. And between those two, invention and innovation into product is the valley of death. And basically, when I was the president of SRI Ventures, I specialized in crossing the valley of death. So that's really essential in, in how you go about doing that. Now, going back to your question, 
the, the other side of your question was, is this good for society? There's, there was two basic fundamental elements of thought for artificial intelligence. One element of thought is it's an assistant that assists you in your daily life. It assists you in all your transactions. It assists you in helping you in whatever you want to accomplish. The other side of artificial intelligence is that it's a replacement for people. It's a robotic kind of system. It does things um, as an in independent entity, so to speak. It, it'll perform functions. It'll be like a robot. The, the original work that we always did and the philosophy we always had at SRI and which I always had was one that was established by Doug Engelbart back in you know the 60s when Doug Engelbart was the one who invented the mouse. He was the one who gave the first you know, exposure of what was a graphical user interface. He was a great Medal of Honor, a Medal of uh, Technology winner from uh, Clinton. This is a this is the model of assisting people, not replacing them. And that's that's what I believe is what's happening. So to answer your question in short form. I think Siri is meant, and so is our world, meant to assist humans, not replace them. You know, it's very interesting because there, I did a book review about how uh, technology and, and robotics um, eventually will take away a lot of jobs. And the whole premise of the book was, well, don't freak out about it. Just be conscious of it and evolve your life knowing that that's going to happen in the future because it's not not going to happen. And just don't choose a career that will be replaced by automation. I agree completely. I mean, it's it, to me, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't wonder about what people who are currently educated and skilled in things that are now being replaced are going to do. That's a real social and human problem. But secondly, I have no doubt that major jobs are being created by the advancements of technology. I mean, we've seen that for the last 200 years in the United States alone, that we will and have and will continue to have great breakthroughs. I mean, robot, robotic systems, medical device systems, artificial intelligence systems, they are going to create major new jobs and major new wealth for countries. Well, I think the new wealth that's going to be uh, happen over the next 50 years is the extension of life expectancy where people will be able to live for like two, three, four hundred years. And then it becomes the concept of, wow, I have a long time to discover and, and do many, many, many things. And maybe it'll just take the pressure off. And you say, well, you know what? I, I think I'm going to become a doctor. And then after doing that for 30, 40, 50 years, I say, you know what? That was fun. I think I'm going to try something else. And it, now everything is so compacted into, into our life. You know, you, you're, you're basically born. you got a couple of years to have a relaxing time. And then suddenly, boom, you're into a school system, pressure, 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 all the way up through your life, you get your career, you're, you're, you're fighting through the career. By the time you actually got your financial stuff together, it's like, oh my God, I, I can't actually enjoy myself very much. And uh, now I have to relax and, and wait to die. Whereas in the future, I think by moving that, that line where everybody's, let's say only 150 before they, they become retirement age, that's a huge shift in how you run your life at the very beginning, in the middle and at the end. It's funny. Uh, I've never heard anyone bring that up so clearly. Um, I agree that it would be exciting. 
And I think most people would really enjoy that as long as their life is not torture, so to speak. It's all about the quality of life, for sure. I really think a lot of it is the way you're brought up and how you're hardwired for success in life, which really reflects what this book's all about. It's like, look, you got to go in with your eyes open. You got to realize, like, hey, we're getting into a new venture. There are some limitations. There are some rules here. Um, and based on that segue, I wanted to ask you this question. What is the problem with entrepreneurs that start up, they say, we've got this amazing product, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly they're given funding. Here you go. They know what their burn rate is. Is there a problem with them saying, okay, we've been pitching this for two years. We finally got the green light. And then they have a really hard time actually moving forward and doing what they said that they could do. Not because they can't, because then they start second guessing themselves. Well, I agree that if you're second guessing yourself once you've received investment, there is a difficult problem to resolve. Is that a leadership issue? It definitely is a leadership issue, and it's a CEO and leadership team issue. I mean, when you're creating a company, and I've created over 30 companies personally with people, and 70 through SRI, what you're doing is iterating, as you just pointed out earlier, on the value proposition and also on the team and on the market problem, and on the competition, and you're iterating and iterating and iterating. But by the time you go seek funding, what you've done then is you've crystallized that, and you've brought that to investors. And those investors have confidence in you and in what your vision is. They also have an understanding that if you're failing and truly failing, not just I've tried it and I'll try something else, but you're truly failing. They'll be. They'll back you. They'll be behind you, at least once, twice. I've never ever seen. Um, and so I'd say that if you're going out in the world like you just articulated and said, "I'm not sure anymore," then I, my recommendation would probably be give the money back and keep iterating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it took so long to get it to the point where you're. Oh, now we got the money, but you know what? We're, it's, we're, it's too late, guys. I'm sorry. We should have done this 18 months ago. Now somebody else is doing it. We've got new competition. Maybe it's not such a great idea anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, money is the result of a plan. Money comes when you have a great plan. I actually have never had, and I've had great people ask me this, the problem with raising the money when we had a great plan. I mean, when we created ventures at SRI... We had lots of them as we were creating the plan fall off and say, no, this isn't a venture. This is a venture, you know, and so on. But once we went through the process of creating it, we never had an example of one that didn't receive funding. So I'd say it's really important to have a great plan. And in fact, when you're in front of the great VCs, there are basically three important things that you have to articulate in order to get a substantial, at least, amount of money. Those three things, the first one is you have to be able to express a compelling, and this is in the first five minutes, actually, because venture capitalists have a very short attention span. You have to go in front of them and you have to, first of all, con convince them that you have a compelling and valuable idea. And this goes to your first question about what if you don't 
believe in it anymore. You have to have a compelling and valuable idea. The second thing you have to have is and show them is your passion and commitment to that idea, which again goes to your question. If you don't have it, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to get the funding. And the third is that your ability to execute is there, that you will in fact meet goals and you will accomplish what you've uh, tried to do. If you have those three things in your first meeting with your venture capitalists, you're going to get money. If you got the money and then come back and say, well, I'm not so sure about those three things, well, that's real cognitive dissonance. <laughs> All right. Let's dig down a little bit in the book because, uh, you know, we've been having a great time chatting, uh, you know, about some of the philosophical, uh, philosophical uh, points in, in, in venture capital. But, um, you know, for people that are super duper busy, they, they want to get the book, they're in a bookstore, they open up. What chapter should they look at first uh, to kind of get a, a the best value for their time? Well, there's really two things that people have most difficulty with, in my experience. And again, I've started 30 companies and seen hundreds. The first thing they have most difficulty with is the business plan. And I mean within the business plan, the value proposition. So that's chapter five. That is a core chapter that that People just don't know how to express the value of what they're attempting to create to the potential investors. So I would really, really be careful and read that carefully. The second one is once you're up and running, chapter eight, the five fatal mistakes of startups, that is crucial uh, because you, you, you don't want to go out there in the wilderness on your own. I mean, you know, we used to uh to to have people create companies that really they didn't in themselves know enough about the ecosystem you know so we used to call people that you needed jungle guides because you're out there in the jungle and you you better have a jungle guide and so um these fatal mistakes are as part of your jungle guide education the last one is uh that i'd say if you give me 3 chapters that you should be reading is chapter 10 because if you're an entrepreneur or entrepreneurial but you're at a major company you've had great success you're out there in the world and you're beating it you know you're just you're just crushing it then those people actually are in some sense most at risk if you're in the S&P 500 in the United States at the turn of the century the average lifespan of your company was about 67 years Right now, the average lifespan of an S&P company is 14 years. So if you're, it, it's a remarkable fact that if you're one of those companies that are really there and really succeeding, you better watch out because you're going to be disrupted or you're going to be broken up or you're going to be acquired or you're going to be, um, uh, in some way, that company on average goes away. And that's real, real serious. So this book is about that as well and how to ensure the future, and that's Chapter 10. Hmm. Well, you know, that, that brings a very, very interesting point is, is, you know, 
yeah, you may have a super successful business. You've made a ton of money. Everything's nice. You know, you, you're all basically set up. Once the money question and the survival question is off the table, then it's the project. Then it's the company. So if you're really, really happy and you've got a, a super successful company, you're doing what you want to do, and somebody just basically buys you out, you may have more money, but you have no project. You have no baby anymore. And I think that for an entrepreneur is the worst case scenario. It is that that that's where you're. You've, in fact, I felt that way with Siri. I mean, when we sold Siri to Apple, um, it it felt like you know my it wasn't quite my baby's loss because you know basically it's grown up is really what has begun what happened. But you you are addicted. Let's just be clear about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur and you start up a small company and you help grow it, that is just an addiction. And, you know, very few people that go and build small companies that then get acquired by large ones stick around. They wait till their stock is vested um, and then they go start something new because there's something wonderful about, um, about that, that inspiration and creative ability that you, you brought to this and that you want to do again. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, it may be that in your life it's uh... – that's the only opportunity that's, that's going to fire for you. You might spend the rest of your life trying again and again and again to get the magic back, and, and it may never happen. So it's on, on a, on a long-term situation, I mean, you, you know, you, you hear about people that they're super successful when they're 17 or 20 or 23. That's very young age and sometimes a bad age to become super successful because your perspective is way out of key because then the next time you try it, you just assume that, well, it's going to be successful again. And it's not. And you can be going down and get into a negative cycle. It's really true. I think uh, people have to accept that they don't always have that magical moment, that muse that passes through them more than once. I think that they've already been greatly successful if they've created one. I do have to say that if you've been really successful in creating a great venture, you will be thought highly of. You will be someone that's sought for advice. And obviously, I have this experience now, and it's, 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 it's exhilarating to help companies, even if I'm not the one that created it, to help the ones that that really have similar visions or great visions. It's something that you move from a role of being a creator and builder to sometimes a role of an a mentor and advisor. Well, I think when you get older, um, you want to be a mentor and advisor because then you're um, imparting your knowledge and information and stories and stuff, and it's a very creative, fun, uh, basically low-risk uh, situation and maybe when you're younger, you don't appreciate that, so it, it, you don't get that mentoring is probably one of the most important things you can learn in your life. Um, but when you get older, you're kind of like, that's all you want to do. That's true. So, But even if you're younger, let's go to that then. Yeah, yeah. You've already had one great success. You're in your 20s, and you're trying to have more. I actually think that if you want to continue to be creative and, and want to try, even if you may not eventually try, it's the process of creating and building the ventures that are exciting. And I think you'll be able to do that. You understand how to do it. You'll be able to try and get investment and probably gain investment. And yeah, you may do you know nine more ventures and not succeed like you did before. But the process is making you happy. You are, you are, you're in a creative and building company building process and you enjoy it. 
Yeah, it's you know as you um, as you do more and more businesses, you start to realize there's there's different types of business people. There's builders, and then there's uh, people that you bring on board once you've built it, and then you've kind of got the bureaucracy style people that just they just want to come in and work the system that you've built for them, and you have to understand that a. a, a business in different areas in his life, those are the decisions you have to make. And, and you know, you, you listen to people that are incredibly uninformed and usually basically armchair um, entrepreneurs, and they say, well, why did they hire that CEO for that much money? That's ridiculous, you know. Why didn't they just hire some other guy? And say, well, because that's the guy that's needed to get the company to move forward because the company's in that part of its lifespan. And, and most people just don't understand that. No, I, I, I understand the issue, and I... I'm always surprised by it. I mean, there's if you're trying to have someone make decisions for a multi-billion-dollar company, then their income is relatively insignificant compared to the impact of their decisions. So I, I tend not to think about what their income is. That's <laughs> a market competition issue, rather than you know, are we really paying this person too much? So instead, let's lower the salary and get some other person. Yeah, and I think they should be thinking, is this person's personality type and track record what the company needs? Are we looking at a growth style? Do we need a growth style CEO? Do we need a, a systems-based CEO? You know, who do we need in place to move the company into a more of a mature situation? You just really have to have a real deep understanding of the lifespan of a company and the company you're in, the ability to step away and look at it and say, you know, maybe it's time that we went into a more mature approach to this. Well, that's another point in the book that I really make, which is, at least in my experience, and there's been, as I said, many companies, people have, as you just pointed out, different skills at different times of the life of the company. You know, one of the quotes I use is, you know, a caterpillar and a butterfly need different resources. And... You've had great success if you helped start a company and then you handed over the job to someone else to help build it, you know, maybe going from 50 people to 500, maybe someone else from 500 to 50,000 people. That doesn't show any lack of skill on your part. It's different team players with different skills need different things and do different things. And so people who are who understand themselves and know how what they're good at and 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 how much time and energy they should be in the current role as opposed to some other role is really where you get great success. Well, and the ability to let go as an entrepreneur, you know, it's your baby, you've built it up. And that I think is one of the hardest things to do is to say, you know what, I am going to trust this person to do what needs to be done and not get frustrated if he he succeeds, but not the way I would have done it. That's true, too. I mean, obviously, if you tell people how to do everything that you think you know better how to do, you're not going to have a successful company. Yeah, but well, you're going to have a very frustrated company. Yeah, and, and in fact, what you really want to see are people who can do things better than you could have possibly even imagined they could do. Yeah, there was a, some great books are called Hire a Ten. So if you're going to hire somebody, hire somebody that's actually better at doing your job because that way when you move up, the person you put in your place is going to actually help you move up. It's really true. It's really true. I mean, if you're first rate, you're going to seek other first rate people. If you're second rate, you may think seek third rate people.
I want to talk a little bit about business plan because I think it's probably one of the most um, underutilized and, and under understood um, parts of a business and people really do a terrible job of, of building great business plans. Do you think people put way too much emphasis on the wrong part of the business plan when they're creating it and building it? I think that's true that they do put too much emphasis on the wrong parts. Um, most people think a business plan emphasis is sort of on the financial aspects and they, they tend to uh, separate the financial analysis from their actual story of what this company is going to do and what goals it has and what it's going to achieve. And that kind of dissonance comes across very easily to the investors. Business plans also are generally an, something that should be a result of having an outstanding value proposition. You know, where you, and a, and a true meaning of the word value proposition. In the book, I indicate the 11 major issues that venture capitalists look for in a value proposition. But truthfully, in the roughest sense, a value proposition is stating what is the market problem you're attacking? What is your business and technical approach and or technical approach to attack it? What are the quantitative benefits that you can provide? And what is the competition? Those are, that's the core beginning of the value proposition. And that is not well done in general. Why? Do you think it's just people fluff over it too much? Like, yeah, we don't really know. Or, or look, at we've got these great you know, spreadsheets. That's going to impress the person. But really, is it the vision that that is key? I think what happens is that people feel like their value proposition should be a marketing story. People generally slough over the things of their weaknesses. They generally give visionary statements and they generally don't actually show clarity on the goals they're going to achieve. And so as a result of that, it comes across like a marketing pitch. <laughs> and, and people do not understand, let me restate that, that a marketing pitch is exactly what you don't want to do when you go in front of a great investor. Okay, so what's the difference between a story and a marketing pitch? Okay, so you can always start with a story, you know, a vision, a mission, whatever you want. But you can't climb Mount Everest without a guide, without a plan, without a map. And... That's how marketing pitches and stories come across. They come across like, we're going to get there. We're going to make this great success. This is all we're going to do. What, it, what a great investor will look from you or for you to say is, here are all the issues that we're going to attack. Here's why this is the right time to do it. Here are the resources that we need to do it. Here's the first base camp as I'm climbing Mount Everest, that I'm going to reach. I'm going to get some air. I'm going to relax. I get a little food while I'm there. And in this base camp, I'm going to generate a little revenue and some customers, and I'm going to prove where I am. Here's my first beginning of climbing Mount Everest. Now let me tell you about the risks. Let me tell you about the paths I'm going to take. This path has this risk, so I'm going to take this other path. In other words, what you're doing instead of selling someone, which is the huge mistake 
of going to a venture capitalist, you're partnering with them almost as if they are part of your team and saying, this is you and I going to climb this mountain together and here's all the resources I have and here's what our steps to success will be and here's where we're going to, where we're going to have risks. That's how they want to hear from you. You know, that's brilliant. I love that. What I wanted to ask you is can you have somebody else present your vision if they're part of the core team other than the visionary if they have trouble communicating? Because let's face it, some of the most brilliant people that out there in the world, they're not very good at, at uh, social graces or, or presenting or, or um, actually stringing a couple of sentences together. You know, as a venture capitalist, do they need to see the visionary in the room at the same time that you've been pitched to by somebody else? Well, it, it is possible that the visionary isn't the CEO. What that, that would cause some problems with venture capitalists because they know that the CEO is the ultimate decision maker of a uh, company, that the CEO is, is the ultimate recruiter, the CEO is the other ultimate person that establishes the culture of the company and also makes final decisions on all the milestones that need to be achieved and so forth. So what would happen is if it isn't the CEO that is that person, but say a founder or some VP, that the, the venture capitalists would look very closely at how much this seems to be a team that is working well and closely together. and. And where disagreement occurs is where lines of fracture will eventually potentially blow up the company. Hmm. It's, it's very interesting because, you know, you look at uh, the portrayal of ventures on TV and, you know, of course, it's all glossed and beautifully practiced and, and everybody's very eloquent. But in the real world, it's slightly different than that. And I think a lot of people stumble when they're putting together their business plan and they're presenting their business plan to people. You're not doing an HBO special, people. You don't have to be doing these uh, performances that aren't you. You have to be you. You have to be authentic because the person that's on the chair, he picks up on stuff like that. A venture capitalist is not, they're not bad at reading who people really are. And if you come off as inauthentic, that's basically, uh, you're going to get shut down really, really quickly. So how should people um, approach presenting their idea, their concept on paper or in front of people in an authentic way. Do you think people aren't doing enough of that? Oh, I agree they're not doing enough of that. That goes back again to this issue of being a marketing story as opposed to a value proposition. Uh, in a value proposition, you articulate very clearly what your problems are, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and what you're going to do to overcome them. Venture capitalists in general are not, as a first priority, risk takers, which is counterintuitive. They're risk mitigators. Yes, they take risks, but what they invest in are ventures where they believe the risk is moderate compared to what other people believe it is. And so they're going to take and, and have some knowledge, take an investment and have some knowledge that why this investment will work. Well, other people may not have really understood that. So there's a true partnership there that really will make the difference. 
And by the way, going to investors for money alone is just a huge mistake. Okay, well, you know, that's a, that's a great point because I wanted to talk to you about Chapter 6, choosing investors and the board of directors um, for your, you know, for your organization. Um, are people going about that all wrong too? Well, I think a lot of people make huge mistakes in choosing investors. They, they choose investors partly by going in front of them and saying how much money they need. They say, you know, I, I need a million or two million. Or someone will ask me, you know, how much money should I ask for in front of an investor? And uh, that's one mistake. I'll explain all of these mistakes and how they weave together in a second. A second mistake is that they, they, they pick the investor that gives them the most money at the best terms. That's another huge mistake. Third is they don't know or understand the investor. They just want the money. And they make decisions based on how much money they can get and not which investor they want. And there's many other mistakes associated to this as well. Um, so should you consider having a, like an investor guide, somebody that knows all the, the, the angels investors you know, in your market and be able to introduce you to people that are more viable? You, know, you pitch to them and say, hey, look, this is our idea. These are the type of people. This, this is what we want to do. Who do you think is a good fit? Because let's face it, I mean, angel investors, they're, you have, may have heard of them, but you don't really get introduced to a lot of them. It's true. It's a puzzle to some extent because, um, first of all, if a person refers you to an investor, and often people want to get referrals, the strength of that referral means a lot. An investor would almost always want to know something about you before they go in and, and meet with you. So it, it is a, it's a chicken and egg because if you're starting off and you don't have some person that knows the venture firm and is highly supportive of you, then you have a problem. And, and if they're not highly supportive, um, that's another problem. The, the, you don't want to have people say, you know, and then this often happens to me, hey, can you please refer my venture to some venture firm? And I, my reaction is, you know, it would not be good for you or me. <laughs> um, it's not good for you because I don't know you and I can't really vouch for you. And it's not good for me because I'm making a referral that I can't vouch for. So the, on the other hand, venture firms want referrals. They definitely get hundreds, if not thousands, of ventures proposing to come to them. And they need a way to sort through. And, and, and one good way initially is when it comes from good people that they trust. Well, you know, that, that, that seems like a pretty good strategy is, is to find somebody like you or, or somebody in the industry that's got connections and ask them to come in, uh, you know, maybe as a guide or sit on the board or as some sort of mentor. First of all, it's good for the company to get somebody who knows the venture firms and who is an independent person that's articulate uh, and, and really trusted by the venture firms. Uh, I could not in 10 minutes make a decision on whether a venture is good or not. You know, the criteria that we just talked about, the four things that really make a great venture, the great market problem, the great value proposition, the great team, and the great differentiation in business or technology, those elements have to be understood before I'd be willing to go to a venture capitalist and say, yeah, no, this is really a great venture and I believe in it. 
And, and so then if I am, in fact, helping them get to the venture capitalists, it's likely, yes, they, they, there would have to be some value back to me unless you're, they're, so, they're already known to me somehow. And then it's fine. You know, there's no equity value that comes back. I think Silicon Valley in particular is very good at what's sometimes called pay it forward where somebody's willing to help somebody else and doesn't take anything in exchange. They just helped you. And that happens often, in fact. There's good people here that often do that. But, um, but if somebody doesn't know you, then, then they got to do a lot of hard work to get to know you. Yeah, yeah, and, and sometimes that takes years and years. Yeah, so then, then they're not going to do it in general because they're just – there's just so much going on, on in areas that they're currently involved. Unless there's some overall reason to, to. Let's suppose somebody invents a real change the world idea that is close to the heart of an individual. It's like I really have a passion for uh, art. You know, somebody like Vinod Kosa has often told me, you know, he's, he likes the Chindia problem, uh, China, India, you know, that they're a good fraction of the world. And if you've got a venture that's going to make an impact on China and India to the poor and, and the uneducated, uh, he'd be particularly interested. So if you get a venture idea like that, then you're going to get people who care, not because they want money or anything else, they want to make a difference to the world. Hmm. What would you say to our listening audiences? Um that they should do today to move forward in, in making their, their business better? If a team of entrepreneurs and individuals are interested in creating a breakthrough business, then I'd say that you should read this book, of course, and then you should follow on with understanding the four elements, as we brought up earlier, of how to create a great company. If you're in an existing company and want to build that existing company, then I would say that you've already got your team. Make sure you have the best team. Mediocre teams create mediocre products and great teams can create great products. Make sure that you've constantly evolved, iterated and optimized your value proposition. That's very different than fail fast, fail often, but you're constantly in being posed with threats and you're constantly being posed with opportunities and you should iterate on that. That's the second major uh, thing you should be doing. The third is that you should constantly be addressing the market and the market pain points and keeping that as your primary theme. You are there to solve a market problem, in particular in technology. I have my own real concerns about tech transfer and tech push and all of that. Uh, do not do tech push. Do not believe that technology alone is valuable. Technology in the market is worthless unless it's a solution to a market problem. And I would say that you need persistence and patience, but you need to be clear and, and articulate in working with your investors because they are the ones that are partnering with you to help you create great success. We've been talking about If You Really Want to Change the World, A Guide to Creating, Building, and Sustaining Breakthrough Ventures, and I've been talking with Norman. Thanks for coming on the show, and I just want to throw in here that, you know, even though we didn't talk about the book that much, uh, some of the knowledge that, that came out during the interview is very, very, very valuable. 
Um, and one last question before we go. Where can people go to keep learning and, and, and keep uh, discovering stuff that, that you're talking about? Do you have a blog or, or something like that? Yes. Um, first of all, there's a website we put up called if you really want to change the world.com. And that constantly is being updated with the articles I've written, events I'm going to, and issues that I think are important. You'll find some exciting ventures that are coming out and, and some new news about what I've been doing. And just follow me. Hey, go out there, get this book. You won't be disappointed. And Norman, thanks for being so entertaining. Bob, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.